Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Right as the Civil War was starting up, there was a British guy who had a theory. And the theory centered on the fact that democracy was a pretty good thing. Now, the American experiment hadn't been going very long, so there wasn't a lot of data to work with. And clearly, things were not 100% great because we were about to start a war. But the British guy had confidence in the concept of democracy in general. And he also thought, the more we can expand the populations that are included in a democracy, women, minorities, that's all to the good. That British guy was named John Stuart Mill. And now we've been conducting that experiment for well over 200 years. So here's my question to you. How do you think it's going? Political philosopher Jason Brennan thinks hmm, things could be better. Mill hypothesized that if we all deliberate together, we might still disagree at the end, but we'll kind of go, well, you have a good point and you're reasonable and I like you and I can see what you're getting at. But not every hypothesis pans out. And he points to the work of a political scientist named Diana Mutz at the University of Pennsylvania. So she asked the following question. Um, you're a Democrat. Can you explain to me why someone might be a Republican? If you answer because they're stupid and evil, that predicts... <laughs> <laughs> which many people do. Um, that predicts you're heavily engaged in politics. You give a lot of money to the Democratic Party, that you pro you protest and you write letters to the editor and you listen to political stations and things like that. If you say, well, I'm a Democrat, but let me explain the Republican point of view in a way that they would find appealing, that predicts you don't participate. Brandon is a professor of strategy, economics, ethics, and public policy at Georgetown University. And he's written a book about the issues he has with democracy, or at least democracy the way we have it set up in the U.S. It's called Against Democracy. He says Mill was a real optimist. But over the last half century, some compelling research has begun to pile up. And it looks, unfortunately, like Mill got, got it backwards. Uh, politics tends to make us meaner and dumber rather than smarter and nicer. Yeah, it's interesting because very often when you see people interviewed, just random people interviewed on the street, you know, like sort of on TV news, people say, well, you know, if I'm, I'm between two candidates, I've got to do more research. I've got to find out more about their positions, which you would think is actually a really good answer. If what you're trying to do to figure out who you're going to vote for is go research how they feel about particular topics and see whether that makes sense, that seems like it would be making the average citizen smarter. It might if they actually did it. Um, but the thing is, they'll say that when you interview them because they feel like that's the right thing to say in the same way that like when you do an anonymous poll, people say they give more to charity than they actually do. They'll, they'll lie even though you don't know who they are. But they don't actually do the research. So when we study what Americans know about politics, it's incredibly depressing. You might think of it as the middle 50% of Americans know basically nothing. If we give them a multiple choice test, they do the equivalent of chance. The top quarter or so, which is likely to be your listeners, frankly, and I'm not saying to just suck up. It's just what the stats show. <laughs> <laughs> like the, top, the top quarter get like an A minus B plus on that test. And what's most depressing is the bottom quarter do worse than chance. Um, they get make systematic mistakes. So they get the wrong answer every time. And, and even then, when you think about doing your research, it sort of depends how you do it. So some people come into research with an open mind. They're like, I'm not sure what the truth is, and I want to discover it. But most people who are engaged heavily in politics are, are very biased. And what they do is they look for research that reinforces whatever they currently believe, and they ignore research that uh, says that they're wrong. In fact, typically, if you give people research that says that they're wrong, they actually become more convinced that they're right. So are you saying that what we really need is the smart people to run things? 
Yeah. So the the issue with democracy is not that people are inherently stupid. Um, people are good at running their own lives. They're smart and day to day, but it gives us sort of the wrong incentives. The problem here is the chance that my individual vote will make a difference is vanishingly small. Um, it depends on what state you live in. You, like if you're in Massachusetts, uh, sorry, your vote doesn't yeah. really count. <laughs> it's not a good um, chance. Yeah, I'm in. I live in Northern Virginia, so uh, I actually have like something like a one in twenty million chance of being the decisive voter in the next presidential election. That's, that's pretty good, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because our chances of being decisive are so small, we don't have a very strong incentive to process information in a rational way or even to gather information. So a metaphor I like to use is if I'm about to cross the street, I look both ways, not because I find traffic interesting, but because I need to know what's happening or I might die. And if I see a Mack truck barreling towards me, I wouldn't dare indulge the fantasy that it's actually the Transformer Optimus Prime, my childhood hero, coming to take me to an adventure because I'll die if I'm wrong about that. But uh, in politics, I can afford to be ignorant. I can afford not to look both ways. And I can afford to indulge the fantasies. And so unfortunately, most of us do that. Okay, so let's take the other side of the the idea of elitists. Uh, helping others, the FDR idea. You know, the the conservative William F. Buckley made this case that he'd rather have something like the top 1,000 people, the first 1,000 people in the Boston phone book um, run the country rather than the 1,000 people on the faculty at Harvard, right? With the idea that knowledge is not that helpful. So what makes you even think that knowledge, that elitism is helpful to running the country? Yeah, you know, he might be right that it would be better to have the first thousand people in the Cambridge phone book than the Harvard faculty, but that doesn't mean that <laughs> America as a whole versus like some subset of Americans is the best thing. One of the issues here is we can look at how does knowledge change people's policy preferences? And we actually have lots of data on this. So there's this thing called the American National Election Studies, and every two years they go around asking a lar- like 40,000 Americans, what do you know? What do you care? Like, what do you want to have happen in politics? And who are you? Like, are you male, female, rich, poor, etc.? And when you get all this information, you can use basically second semester statistics to figure out how does knowledge affect our policy preferences? What would happen to the American public if they were fully informed, according to the the basic quiz they get here? What would happen if they were completely ignorant? And we actually can find that the policy preferences of the American public as a whole very closely match what an ignorant public would want, and they don't very much match what an informed public would want. One, one interesting thing that happens is as Americans are, become, are better informed, they start thinking about economics issues more like the way economists do. So, for example, economists, both left and right, are very strongly in favor of free trade. Um, They're in favor of increasing immigration and so on. And we're finding the exact opposite sort of policy preferences among uh, the general population. One of the most interesting findings about voter behavior, and there's like dozens and dozens of studies showing this now, is that people don't vote their pocketbook, which is really surprising because most people are quite selfish in in their day-to-day lives. Um, They don't give that much money to charity. They don't help other people that much. Yet... For years and years, political scientists have been studying, well, do voters vote their pocketbook? And we don't just survey them. We'll ask, we'll do independent thoughts like, well, this would be to your advantage. Do you vote that way? And it looks like people are actually what we would call technically nationalist sociotropes, which means that they vote for what they perceive to be the national interest. And the reason they do that appears to be because if you're selfish, you wouldn't bother vote in the first place. You better serve your self-interest by watching television or playing video games or eating a sandwich than you do for casting a vote for a person who's offering you something. So say, say Donald Trump said to me, 
hey, Jay Brennan, if I'm elected, I will give you a million dollars. So it's worth a million dollars for me for him to win, but right. it's not worth my time to vote for him. I'm actually more likely to die on the way to the polls in a car accident than I am to like change the outcome. So if you think of it, like again, it's like winning the lottery matters, but a lottery ticket isn't worth very much. So people, they vote to sort of express their fidelity to their sense of justice. It's they, they mean well, they just don't know a lot. That's the problem. It's not, it's not about motivation. It's about their cognition. So, you know, I, I think to a lot of people hearing this, uh, they'd think, you know, everything we've thought that's true, you're trying to debunk, that democracy is good, that the more people who vote, the better. Boy, if we could only get those millions of people who sit on the couch on election day or not, not even sit on the couch, who just go to work and don't go to the polls, um, who don't have time, you know, don't have the means, whatever. If we could get everybody out to the polls, boy, wouldn't that be better? And, and you know, when you think about um, voting, what we want to do is get more and more groups of people to be able to vote. So I think in some ways the, the conventional wisdom is no matter what you know or what you don't know, voting should be a basic human right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and there's a question of why do people think that? So I, first of all, is democracy good? I'd say yes. It's clear that de overall democracies perform better than other forms of governmental systems that we've tried. The best places to live right now are liberal democracies, not other kinds of systems. But for me, Asking whether democracy is good is like asking whether the BMW 3 Series is good. Yeah, it's good, but it could be better. It's not perfect. It has flaws. Um, so then it comes down to the question of what is the kind of value that democracy has? And a metaphor I like to use is I ask people how they value different things. I say, when you think of a hammer, you value it for its instrumental value. It serves a purpose, and you would never try to use a hammer when a wrench would work, or you'd always go for a better hammer rather than a worse one. When you think of a value of a painting, you care about who made it and what it symbolizes and what feelings it evokes. And when you think about people, you tend to think that they're ends in themselves. So then we can ask, well, what kind of value does democracy have? Is it like a hammer? Is it like a painting? Or is it like a person? And the conventional wisdom in the U.S. is that democracy has the value that a painting and a person has. It's an end in itself. It's inherently just. It expresses the right things. And what I'm trying to argue is that we should just think of democracy as being like a hammer. And if we can find a better hammer, we should use it. So one thing that's obviously happened um, in the U.S., but in other countries, too, over time, over the course of our democracy, is that more people have become able to vote, right? You had a very uh, small slice of the population originally that was allowed to cast a ballot over time, you know, minorities who weren't able to, women who weren't able to, all became part of that electorate, younger people. Um, are you saying, I mean, what's your vision? Is your vision that we cut back down again to a small slice of people who are allowed to cast a ballot? Yeah, so in the, in the past, it was just property owners uh, who could vote in the United States, male property owners, um, except for, I guess, in a few states, women could vote early. Um, and they eventually expanded that. And there are big problems with that because the people who were voting were racist. They had illiberal attitudes. They were anti-women. Um, and we basically expanded the right to vote at the same time that the general population also started to have favorable attitudes towards the people who'd been denied. Um, I do think that past political inequality has almost always been unjust. It's been on absurd bases, like are you Christian or are you the right religion or are you the right sex? And um, it's been insulting to people to deny them the right to vote for that reason. And in fact, they're denied the right to vote very explicitly to say that they're inferior. That said, 
Um, we could instead think of the right to vote as being nothing more than a plumbing license. And we could imagine like the equivalent of that. We have no real special status. And we could imagine a, a world in which uh, or a system in which the right to vote is apportioned according to political knowledge. So in the same way that it would be it would make, would make sense to deny someone the right to drive because he's an atheist or because he's gay, but we do deny people the right to drive if they're incompetent at driving. What if we were to do something like that with regard to voting? Your ability to vote or right to vote depends to some degree on your basic political knowledge. You know, clearly over time, uh, there have been... Uh, you know, quote unquote, tests given at the polls that very often were designed to uh, take certain people out of the voting pool, right, to disenfranchise them. Do you worry that a new sort of test could be in that vein of disenfranchising people? Uh, Yes, I do, in a sense. Um, So for what it's worth, and I haven't really argued for this, but I, I don't think anyone has an inherent right to vote. I think the reason we should give you or me a right to vote is because of what it does for everybody, not because of what it does for you or me. But it is true that if you have any kind of test system, people are going to try to abuse it for their own benefit. I'm not as worried about it being done in a racist way now as it would have been in the past because people are just significantly less racist than they would be. And also, if there were a test like this, it's clear that everyone would be hyper vigilant looking into racial bias. So it'd be difficult to get away with it. Um, the same way that when certain parties in certain states try to use voter IDs to disenfranchise people, everyone calls them on and there's a tremendous amount of attention. I think the thing here, though, to think about is not, is the system going to be perfect? Is it going to be free of failures and flaws and abuse? Of course, it's not going to be. It's more of a question of, does this system with all its flaws and failures and warts work better than our current system with all its flaws and failures and warts? We're not comparing an ideal to an ideal. We're comparing a a messed up system of one sort to a messed up system of another and asking, well, which one's better? Okay, so here you put this theory out there. In some ways, it's very, you know, we talked about this as very kind of contrary to what we all think, which is like democracy is good and as many people as can possibly vote, uh, you know, that's the best. Um, Have you gotten pushback? Like, what have you heard back from people? Uh, The most common objection that I get from, say, philosophers is the view that democracy is inherently just because it expresses something. To have a democratic system is to say something about the value of people. So what I'm trying to push for is this idea that we we shouldn't regard participating in politics as majestic. We shouldn't regard the right to vote as anything different from a hairdressing license or a plumbing license. But it's clear that the culture is definitely on the other side. When you uh, look around the country, clearly an election year, there's a lot of uh, turmoil and furor in this election. Do you see signs that people in the U.S. may be open to thinking about some sort of government that's different from the kind of democracy we have right now? You know, I think they are much more open. um, And I have almost uh, (laughs) personal confirmation of this. so, you know, a couple of years ago, I, I was on a radio interview talking about the ethics of voting, another another book of mine, where I was arguing that many of us have a moral obligation to stay home, um, that it would be like it's we're not helping the country by voting. And similar, similar ideas for what we're talking about today. And when I was being interviewed, people would call in and just say, this is evil. You're an evil person. And I did the same interview with the same person on the same station about a year and a half later. And then people called in and said, yeah, what do we do about this? Like, you're on to something. So... 
I've been joking that Donald Trump is really good for me. He's sort of uh, people look at because Donald Trump, he's a populist candidate who's running on the basis of low information, resentful voters. Um, and it's clear that that's explaining part of his rise. And and people see that, you know, it's, he probably isn't going to win the election, at least as far as we can tell now. But nevertheless, like there's something scary of that we're open to that much risk of someone like that who can just, in effect, behave like a demagogue and get support because of it. Jason Brennan is the author of Against Democracy. He's a professor of strategy, economics, ethics, and public policy at Georgetown University. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's coming like the tidal flood beneath the lunar sway, imperial, mysterious, and amorous raid. Democracy is coming. <laughs> <laughs>